Uh, We're going to hear our Bible passage for this morning that we're going to be looking at. And it's from Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And Hannah is going to read that out to us. Thank you, Hannah. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And this is an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. As I say, each week it's good to have our Bibles in front of us, open and reading it together, because the Bible is God's authority. It's his word. Uh, His word is how this world was created. His word is how our lives were brought into relationship with him. And so as we look at his word, we actually say, this is God's authority over me now. Uh, So let's have the Bible open in front of us. And I hope at at, at home, uh, you're able to have your Bibles too, um, reading it with us. It's good to continue um, this series in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And last week, we saw that this sermon is not a list of ought-tos for the Christian, but it's a beautiful description of who we are because Jesus has brought us into his kingdom. So our passage this morning is not saying we ought to be poor in spirit, we ought to mourn, we ought to be meek. Rather, this is a description of our new freedom to live out the new kingdom of God in our hearts, both now and in eternity. And yet as we look at the first three Beatitudes this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. They don't feel as though they describe freedom and new life, do they? If you look at them carefully, it's a slightly depressing picture of true spirituality. It leaves us asking, is this really what freedom is about? Is this really the freedom that Jesus promises? But I hope as we see these first three Beatitudes, that actually what they do is they open up a rich abundance of what Christ has done for us. Because when we see truly what these Beatitudes describe, the condition they describe, sinners before a righteous God, only then actually what they do is they show us the incredibleness of Jesus' salvation. What we have been freed from and the new life he's given us, it shows us how utterly blessed we truly are. It's a bit like, as I said last week, It's only when you put your cherished old Ford Fiesta next to a brand new, beautiful Bugatti Veyron that you realized how dreadful the knackered old thing really was, how much of a death trap you were rattling around in for all those years. And we need these beatitudes this morning. We really do. Because in our churches today, in our culture today, we do not hear enough of the S word. 
sin. Have you noticed culturally we've drifted away from describing adultery as sin? Hatred as sin. Lust as sin. Actually, our culture celebrates sin more than it, it, it hates it. In the church as well, we don't often use that word sin. The sinfulness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our souls, the sinfulness of our attitude, the offense against God that sin is. Or we'll talk about, and as, as Justin Welby has rightly done, he has rightly declared the sins against ethnic minorities in the Church of England have been abominable. But he's not said those sins are against God, and that is the true horror of those sins. He's not declared that openly. Isn't that interesting? If we don't preach the S word well, we won't see our desperate need for a savior and cry out to him, and neither will we daily see our need of Jesus' blood. We won't walk in that humility that these beatitudes help us see. So as we come to this passage this morning, these three Beatitudes, I hope we're prepared to be challenged. Because these are the king's words. They're about his kingdom. Let's listen to them as Jesus sits his disciples down and says, listen now, guys. Just listen. And let's let these Beatitudes change us. So let's start this morning by looking at what Jesus means when he says, blessed. Now, just as I said last week, um, we call these blessed are parts of the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes. That is simply from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. So it's a long way around of going blessed. Uh, So what does blessed mean? Well, let's look at that now. On the face of it, most people understand blessed in this context to mean happy. And in many ways, that's a really good description. But we have to realize that happiness, uh, that the happiness that Jesus is talking about is not mere emotion. It's, it's richer than the happiest of life events that you have ever experienced. Jesus' understanding of blessed in these opening 10 verses has many levels. It's, he's talking about a, a deep joy, a contentedness, a fulfillment, a completeness of identity. It's happiness that's, that means even though you may find yourself in the most horrendous situation, there is still a deep joy, and you can't explain it. To be blessed is to find something truly astounding, something truly miraculous, something that satisfies our souls in a way that nothing else can. It means grounding our identity and contentment and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Blessed are, blessed are. Belonging to him gives significance, meaning, and fulfillment. The blessed person is the person who has God even in the midst of everything we want the least. In other words, in the midst of suffering or difficulty or trials. And our world needs this more than anything else. Why? Because happiness is one of the greatest questions confronting our our culture, 
confronting humankind. It always has. The, 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 uh, the world is, is longing for happiness, and it's tragic to see the ways in which people are seeking it. For those seeking happiness in wealth and power and sex and fame and success, even good things like belonging to an affirming group or a stable family, people who are searching for happiness in those things will always find themselves miserable one day, even if they achieve what they want. You know, Rockefeller, the the richest man in, in, in the 19th century, was once asked, you have all the money you could ask for. How much is enough? And his reply was this, one dollar more. One dollar more. The the richest man in the world still seeking wealth. Isn't that mind-blowing? Bob Geldof, uh, one of the most incredible, uh, one of the most incredible fundraising, he ran the most incredible fundraising event of the 80s, a Band-Aid. He brought international relief from all over the world, people to give money to relieve famine in Ethiopia. And and he says in his biography, at the end of that concert, just as he'd got to the point of saying, I've done it, someone kind of jokingly kind of came up to the the stage and and shouted at him, Bob, oi, Bob, is that it then? And in his biography, he says, it completely destroyed him, that question, is that it then? completely destroyed him. He sought fulfillment, identity, happiness in raising money. And in that one question, it was revealed for what it was, a disappointment. You see, one of the lies, the biggest lies that sin can tell us is that we can find happiness apart from God. But I think, I think Dan said it a few, a few weeks ago, Seeking happiness apart from God is like drinking salt water. It quenches your thirst for the briefest of moments, but leaves you with a deeper thirst than when you started. So where do you find happiness? Where do you find this blessedness that Jesus is talking about? Well, the answer is this. To sit yourself down with Jesus and listen. To sit yourself down with Jesus. And listen to this Sermon on the Mount. And it brings us to our first point this morning. You are blessed if you count yourself spiritually bankrupt. You're blessed if you count yourself spiritually bankrupt. Look at verse 3 with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, looking at this statement that opens the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that Jesus says is that the blessed person is the one who sees themselves as spiritually bankrupt poor. And it's got nothing to do with physical poverty or wealth. Spiritual poverty is recognizing that there is a massive gulf between the character of God and our character, the character of humankind. It's realizing that God is pure and holy, almighty in power, almighty in love, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-sustaining in everything and anything, he is there. And his character is above all things. The Bible describes God as God is love. In totality, in purity, in, in magnificence. 
And it's realizing that because of the condition of our hearts, because our hearts are hardwired to say to this God, go away, I don't want you as part of my life. Spiritual poverty is realizing we don't deserve to exist in his presence, and yet we do. To be poor in spirit, it means to be humble before God, having no assurance before him, and realizing we cannot rely upon ourselves to be made right with him. In other words, spiritual poverty says there's no self-reliance, no self-esteem, seeing there's nothing we can bring to the table that God will accept us for. And we see this spiritual poverty in every single second of every day of our lives. Do you know, we all steal, we all lie, we all cheat, we swear, we get angry, we get jealous, we lust, we are quick to be discontent when God has, discontent with what God has given us. We shout at our parents, we shout at our children, we shout at our colleagues, we gossip, we slander, we are impossible, we sulk, we undermine authority, we hate, we blaspheme, and all that in the car on the way to work or school each day. We have nothing to offer God in our characters. Our evil and the way we treat God, that is what impoverishes us, and there's no way we can get rid of it. Spiritually, our hearts are sinful. Spiritually, our hearts are bankrupt. Now, you might find that depressing, But the whole Sermon on the Mount is built on this great truth. You cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand, take in, believe, and live out this truth. Because when we see ourselves as we really are before God, that is when we understand what spiritual poverty really is, what we really are before God. And that is when, and this is, this is the crux of it, that is when we truly understand the second part of this first beatitude. Why? Why? Because that's the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in a sense, it's only when we've brought low that we can be raised up. So look at how those who are poor in spirit are raised up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. There's a great example in the Bible of it, where Jesus is talking about a parable. It's a parable of a tax collector. And he describes a Pharisee before it. The Pharisee comes to God and says, God, accept me because I'm an amazing Pharisee. I'm, a, I'm such a religious bloke. I am gorgeous. And you can accept me for it because, hey, if there's anyone who can bring everything to the table and you accept um, them for being who they are, that's me, the Pharisee. And then Jesus says, no, 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 there was a tax collector, the most evil person in their culture. As Jesus' listeners were, were hearing him describe this tax collector, they were thinking, Jesus, don't go there. Please don't say this tax collector is at all acceptable before God because we can't stand tax collectors. They are hated. They are most hated in our culture. And Jesus says, no, the tax collector goes to God. He beats his breast. He would not even look up to heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
He realized his state before God and begs God for forgiveness. And what does Jesus say about him? Where's the blessing of acknowledging that kind of, a po- uh, that kind of poverty? It's the approval of our Savior. Jesus said about the tax collector, I tell you, this man went home justified, made right, standing perfectly upright and true before God, justified before God. In other words, in realizing he had nothing to bring to God apart from his sin and throwing himself upon God's mercy, the tax collector found God's grace and God gave him the kingdom of heaven. He found new life in Christ. He was brought into God's family. And the joy of acknowledging spiritual bankruptcy is that we can finally be honest with God and ourselves. That's what the first step of faith looks like. It looks like the tax collector. We can honestly come to the point where we cry out to God to provide a way out of our sin because we know we can't do it ourselves. And that's where God deals with our sin. That's when he gives us his kingdom. And listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not the way in only. It is the way on in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say that again. We do not receive the magical ticket of spiritual poverty and that gives us access to the kingdom of God. The person who truly belongs to the kingdom of God who is, the, is the person who walks in poverty of spirit every day, day after day after day, realizing that our hearts long to go driving our old banged up fiesta, but actually we belong in the Bugatti Veyron. I hope you get my analogy there. We belong in the kingdom. And our hearts long to go back to how we used to live. But that's not what Christ has saved us for. And day after day, Christ calls us to walk in poverty of spirit, to see our sin, to see how often we are selfish, how often we are discontent, how often we cry to God because his sovereign choices have not worked out according to our choices. And when we're in those situations, we rail against God and say, God, why has this happened to me? Rather than, Lord God, I praise you that worse hasn't happened. And may you teach me all that I need to learn in these difficult circumstances. May you teach me all that I have to learn with these difficult people. May you teach all that I have to learn in these situations where I can't cope. May you teach all that I have to learn about confessing my sin and walking humbly with you. To be blessed by God is to count yourself spiritually bankrupt. But the second thing that Jesus points out is that to be blessed is to weep at our sin against God. You are blessed, and that's our second point, you are blessed if you weep at your sin. Look, it's important to say that the Sermon on the Mount is not a a, a bunch of random statements. They they kind of build up, up on each other. So, so the truths that Jesus shared are like building blocks. The starting place is the most beautiful place of the Beatitudes. 
If we understand the riches of that first beatitude, then the next beatitude says, we truly understand the sinfulness of sin. That's what Jesus says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not a verse about grief, and, and let me be honest, the Bible does talk honestly about grief and, and God's comfort in our grief. And it's right to grieve loss, it's right to grieve our circumstances, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Here, Jesus shows us not that God blesses those who see themselves, sorry, not just that God blesses those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, but also that God blesses those who mourn at the seriousness of sin. It implies a deep sorrow, a sorrow caused by the realization that sin deeply offends God. So the blessed person is the person who realizes their spiritual bankruptcy and weeps at the awfulness of both corporate and personal sin. The mourners in this verse weep at the crassness of their actions and thoughts and attitudes against God. They're sensitive to how their personal sin affects them and the whole body of the church. And they weep at the thought that their sin might be stunting God's work in and through the church. I wonder whether we've considered that personally. I heard a very famous evangelist uh, once say that the worst and most unproductive year that he had in his work was when towards the end of the year, one of his gap year apprentices confessed that he was regularly leaving the church offices at lunchtimes to engage in casual sex. And he said there was a causal link between, between that lad and that year. A causal link between that sin and, and that horrific year. Our personal sin is corporate sin. And the Bible is full of examples where that happens. Ananias and Sapphira. Achan. His personal sin brought calamity on Israel. Ananias and Sapphira, their personal sin brought judgment on the early church. Actually, as we read communion in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's the personal sins of individuals that are bringing shame on communion itself. The Lord's table. Our personal sin is also our corporate sin. But these mourners will be comforted because God promises to comfort his people. And what comfort? Those who mourn see the power of Jesus as the one who paid for their sins. This is the beauty of this. Because actually as we weep and as we mourn, actually there's only one place to go, isn't there? Isn't it the cross? Isn't it Jesus' shed blood? Isn't it the forgiveness that he's poured out upon his children? Because as we mourn, as we weep, there's no sense in which we say, oh, I've got to undo that, God. Let me try and make it up, for you, uh, make it up to you by doing X, Y, and Z. Because the more we do that, the more we realize there is nothing that can make up for our sin. And the more we realize, actually, the grace of God that has been poured out upon us, that Jesus, God the Son, in royal majesty, came down and humbled himself, not just to sin, but to death itself, the punishment for sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in doing so, my goodness, isn't there forgiveness? Isn't there blessedness? 
Isn't there comfort, relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not through our own efforts, but through the precious blood of Jesus? So believers, let me ask you this morning, will we go home and reflect on that sin? Our personal sin, the sin of the church, will we see our sin for what it is and weep, truly weep, truly weep? Our sins are what drove Jesus to the cross. Our deepest shame is what he died for. And yet there too is our deepest comfort. He doesn't hang on the cross and condemn us and curse us all, which was his right. Because he was the only perfect person, sinless person in this universe. Actually, he chose to forgive us. And as we go to the cross, this is our invitation to walk humbly with him and with blessedness. Isn't that almost the contradiction? Blessed, happy, content, fulfilled are those who mourn. But in that contradiction, there's such a beauty, isn't there? Because in our mourning, in our weeping, in our, in our, in our, in our awe, in our desperate, desperate longing for salvation, we find it at the cross. And there truly are we blessed. There truly do we see the salvation of God and the richness that Christ has won. And if you're not a Christian this morning, will you acknowledge, perhaps for the first time, how spiritually poor you are? Will you weep at your sin? It's, it's, it, your sin is constantly against people taken, granted, we get it. But oh, it is worse, worse, worse in its condition against God. Every time we sin, every time our attitude says we want to do life our own way, we say to God, go away. Get out. I don't want you. And that heart, that attitude is what sin is. So will you weep? The new relationship with God can be yours if you talk to God. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can bring to that table. We're all sinners. We're all the worst of sinners. There's no one in this room who can stand up and say, well, actually, I'm not sorry. Just get it right, Phil. I'm a little bit better than everyone else here. No, we're all sinners. We're all the worst of sinners. So why don't you go home? Please, just, if you're at home already, go to a room and talk to Jesus. Talk to him and say, look, Lord Jesus, this is the reality I can't deal with my sin, and only you can. Like that tax collector, I beg of you, please forgive me. May I walk with you daily in that attitude. I beg of you, please forgive me. And walk with me in newness of life as I mourn my sin, reminding me of the precious, precious blood that was shed to forgive my sin and take it away from me and bring me into a relationship with God. There it is. If you're not a Christian this morning, will you do that? Why? Because as you ask Jesus for forgiveness, he will forgive you and will grant you a newness of life. He will grant you the kingdom of heaven. He will grant you comfort. To be blessed is to count yourself bankrupt and to weep at sin 
And that brings us to our third and final point this morning. To be blessed is to entrust your life to God. Look at verse 5 with me. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is one of those difficult words to define. Um, Commonly, it's used to describe the timid um, or people who are unsure of themselves or a bit of a pushover. But meekness is hugely underrated. It's it's the opposite of big-headedness. And it's the opposite of low self-esteem. Because the meek are both humble and they're confident. It's a confident acceptance that God is the boss of your life. And that we're living in in, in the rightness of his majesty. It's submitting to his opinion of us above every other opinion in our lives. Isn't that great? That's what meekness is. Meekness is saying, I walk this world with Jesus as my king. Nothing, nothing else, in spite of what my heart wants it to be. Now, it's kind of the attitude, an attitude that would great on The Apprentice. Um, the, the meek don't selfishly advance their own interests. It, it's, it's, it, it just wouldn't make good telly if it appeared on, on The Apprentice. Could you imagine the meek person on that show um, being sat in Lord Sugar's boardroom and, and not feeling the need to shout or scream or, or be catty or argue or get aggressive or blame others, but they're just sat there content to ground their identity in the love of the Lord Jesus and take the hits because of it. That's meekness. It's not the stuff of self-centeredness, but the heart of the truly blessed. And Jesus promises that the meek will inherit the earth, and they will do that in two ways. And listen, I'm going to say it now, and just please clock it, okay? Just, I'm going off script, so let's put that away a little bit for a sec. When we're reading the Beatitudes, and I made this mistake a few years ago when I preached through the Beatitudes, I got about halfway through and I realized that the Beatitudes are not just about here and now, but they're also about eternity. Okay, so, so as you read the Beatitudes, as you read the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, you have got to put a second pair of glasses on, and the pair of glasses are eternity glasses. So as we read this, look, blessed are the meek, because they will inherit the earth. Two ways. You know, the meek will inherit this earth. Why? Because what we have now is given to us by God and we're eternally grateful for it. And in in knowing that, it means that we're not chasing after what we don't have and what we don't need. Isn't that beautiful? We'll have, we'll own this world as we express that meekness more and more, as we entrust ourselves to God's total control over our lives. So young people, look, meekness means that all the latest gadgets and gear will not provoke you to jealousy. For those of us who are insecure about who we are, meekness is being truly happy for those around you who seem more confident and more vibrant. Hey, I'm really pleased for them. Self-centeredness is on a leash. Low self-esteem is on a leash. The meek at work are content to be with the colleagues they are. They are, even those colleagues who might really be hard work. The meek in church praise God for the gifts that they're given, even if they, and they don't wish for X, Y, and Z gifts that others have. The meek at home cherish the time that God has given us with those we love, rather than envying others for their perfect family. 
But you know, the second way that the meek will inherit the earth is that literally we will inherit the earth when Jesus returns. Do you know, that's the real reality of this Sermon on the Mount. The few short years in this world are but a blink of the eye compared to the joy of eternity with Jesus. The meek will have the earth. They will have the earth for eternity. One day, those who truly entrust themselves to the sovereignty of God will be truly blessed. And, and the earth will be laid out before them for their king, or by their king, and, and they will enjoy his glory for eternity. Meekness allows us to appreciate what God has given us today and not get caught up in idolatry. If we run from this world's material desire to own more and more of this world and strive rather to know the king, do you know the irony of it is this? We will end up owning the world. Isn't that amazing? So the blessed are those who are poor in spirit who mourn and are meek. The person whose life is characterized by these things will ground their, their identity and contentment in the person of Jesus. They will truly find themselves on a mountain, at his feet, listening to him, not to the world, not to social media, not to the gossip at the school gate, not to the affirmation of our bosses, but to Jesus. That's where his approval comes from. He is their complete fulfillment. And they are the truly blessed. And brothers and sisters, let's live out who we are. I said it at the beginning, I said it last week. But these Beatitudes describe the freedom we have in Jesus. Let's be those who confess daily, hourly our spiritual bankruptcy. Let's weep at our sin. Let's trust our lives to God. Then we will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will enter into Jesus' kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? I'll hand back to Dan now.